Hello and welcome back to Confused and Homicidal. Woohoo. Yeah. Welcome so, back. Yeah. I actually have Tori back with me now. Woohoo. <laughs> Woohoo. Thank yeah. you so much for your patience over the last two months. We both had finals. We both barely survived. Thank you, Andrew. <laughs> no comment. <laughs> <laughs> he ended up giving. Um, yeah, we just had a bout of stomach flu go through. So right in the middle of finals, I was out of commission for two days, two and a half days. So thank you. Sorry. Maybe. I'm kidding. <laughs> it happens. Your your immune system is lower during finals, so it happens. Mm-hmm. But yeah. Long story short, we both survived and we're back and ready to try and podcast a little bit. Yeah. So this week, um, this is Tori's case. So she is homicidal and I am confused. Yep. Yeah. So we'll just dive right into it. We've made you wait long enough. So now that it is summer, a lot of people are camping. Do you like to camp, Andrew? Oh man, I love to camp. I was I was actually supposed to be camping like tomorrow but then I wasn't feeling too well so I decided to stay home but my parents they're they're out camping this weekend and I went camping last weekend fun so it sounds like you love to camp I also love to camp very excited I'm going camping soon Ooh, that's very fun so I cannot wait and because of this I decided why not scare the crap out of myself the next time I go camping by doing a case (laughs) that involves camping Heck yeah. So this case I'm going to talk about is the Wells Gray Provincial Park murders. Okay. So as it sounds, it takes place in the Wells Gray Provincial Park, which is kind of like a state park in the U.S.'s eyes. Mm -hmm. And so it is located in East Central British Columbia, Canada. It is a very large park and has an area that spans 1.3 million acres Mm -hmm. or about 5,250 square kilometers. And this area also includes hundreds of kilometers of trails. So it's a very, very large park. Yeah. My, my brain can't fathom those numbers. It's just like, yep, that's very big. Yes, very big. And so the park is about five hours north of East Vancouver. And what's really cool about it is that it is one of the 391 parks in the country that's considered like a class a wilderness area which that that means it's that it's a parkland that is fully protected and so nobody including commercial companies are permitted to extract industrial resources from it even if the land might be rich for like mining or logging oh cool which just judging and kind of guessing this area is probably i mean there's a lot of trees there so definitely rich for logging Mm -hmm. And yeah, it's very possibly rich for mining, but so it's really cool, at least in my eyes, that they're really committed to keeping this a wilderness area. Yeah, for sure. Because there's just, there's way too many areas of the world these days that are being taken over and just that they're being completely destroyed. And we need to protect some of the areas that we have and make sure that like, you know, that it's still there for the future because we no, we we want to make sure that we're doing stuff sustainably. Oh, for sure. And there are so many more. There's so many important reasons why we need to have these areas. Mm-hmm. Like I could go on and on about them. I could start my own podcast on that. <laughs> but I looked up a bunch of pictures and it is absolutely gorgeous. Mm-hmm. And so in the summer of 1982, the Johnson Bentley family, which consisted of 44 year old Robert Johnson, his 41 year old wife, Jackie, and their two daughters, 13-year-old ja- Janet and 11-year-old Karen, as well as Jackie's parents, George and Edith Bentley, decided to take a camping trip in, in this park. Mm-hmm. The family intended to spend some time like hiking, fishing, and just overall be with each other. And one of Robert's friends described the family as very close and said that they all got along really well, especially when they spent time outdoors camping with each other. Oh, it sounds like cute. <laughs> I know that sounds so sweet, so wholesome. Mm-hmm. 
but Robert, Jackie, and the girls left their house on August 2nd and spent a few days visiting some friends in Alberta before making their way to Clearwater, British Columbia. And so in a town just outside of the Wells Grave Park boundary where they would meet with George and Edith on the 7th, on the 7th of August, which was a Saturday. Okay. So some background on George and Edith. Mm -hmm. After 36 years of marriage, they had sold their house near Vancouver and they were taking a lot of road trips in their brand new 1981 Ford pickup truck that also had a camper attached to the bed of it. Okay. In the three years prior, the couple had taken a lot of summer trips to the Southwest, the Southwestern United States and other parts of British Columbia. But now, but now that they had the camper and the truck, they're going to take a lot of time traveling and they're going to travel full time. Mm-hmm. That sounds like fun. Mm-hmm. I know. It sounds like so much fun. They're totally mm-hmm. living my dream right now. Yeah, me too. The elderly couple usually liked to camp in secluded spots because they really didn't like crowds. George was an introvert who enjoyed quiet outdoor fish afternoons fishing and camping by himself or with his granddaughters. And while Edith was the more outgoing of the two, she loved to be on trips with her family and grandkids whenever she could. Aww. I know, it sounds so <laughs> sweet. Yeah. In addition to their adult daughter, Jackie, George and Edith also had two other grown-up children, Brian and Karen, who lived near Vancouver. So there's Karen, who is the little girl, the 11-year-old girl. And then there's also a Karen, which is Jackie's sister. Okay. So not to get them used. Lots of Karens. Got it. Mm-hmm. And so despite the more nomadic lifestyle, George and Edith would routinely, routinely check in with friends and family during their travels. Okay. At the age of 66, George's health wasn't the best. He was forced to take an early retirement from his career at a logging mill because of an ongoing heart condition. Edith, who was 59, cared for her husband closely, and she never missed the opportunity to phone one of her kids while they were out traveling to let someone know where they were and how George was feeling. She always wanted someone to know where they'd be and would often send letters or call whenever they got to a new park or city. So even though, yeah, despite they would were traveling a lot, they would regularly check in with friends and family just so they can know how they were doing and just That's good. make sure that they're okay, which is really responsible. Yeah, right. for sure. You should always let at least someone know where, where you are or where you're going. So that if anything goes wrong, so at least someone mm-hmm. should. Oh, for sure. At, at least su- suspect something. Mm-hmm. Well, anything could happen. Like you could just. Oh, yeah. An injury mm-hmm. can occur. Just you never know. So it's always good to mm-hmm. have somebody knowing where you are. Mm-hmm. And so the Johnson and Bentleys, according to their friends and coworkers, were planning to spend about 10 days on vacation in the Wells Gray Park. But after 10 days on August 16th, no one had heard from anyone in the two families. Oh, no. At first, this wasn't really a big alarm. I mean, this was 1982. There were no cell phones and social media to stay in touch with family or friends back then. That's true. So they just really didn't think too much of it. But when Robert didn't show up for his scheduled shift at Gorman's Brother Lumber in West Bank on Monday, August 16th, his absence caused his coworkers to start to think that something was wrong. Mm-hmm. Robert was the mill's head czar and had never in his 20 years of working at the mill had he ever overstayed his vacation days before. His colleagues wanted to take their concerns to the mill's manager, but he was also on vacation. Oh, no. Mm-hmm. Was he camping too? I'm not sure. They didn't really say, but he was possibly. (laughs) But so instead, the mill workers called Jackie's brother and sister, Brian and Karen, who are also, so yeah, also Georgie, this two other adult children. And right away, they knew that something wasn't right. Mm -hmm. Jackie's siblings went to Robert and Jackie's house in West Bank to check on the things and found the home just eerily quiet. But it seemed completely normal. Mm. The house the house still had power and an operable phone line. The family shoes were sitting on a staircase. Food was in the pantry and there was unpaid bills neatly piled on the coffee table. Just kind of as if they had planned to leave, but come right back. Weird. Mm-hmm. So trying not to think the worst, the family members waited a few more days to hopefully hear from either Robert and Jackie or Edith and George. Mm-hmm. But on August 23rd, Robert's manager returned from Gorman Brothers returned to Gorman's brother's lumber from his own vacation and realized that Robert was still missing. Mm-hmm. Bewildered that one of his most trusted supervisors was now not showing up to work, he started to call Robert's friends and family to figure what was going on. Because, mm-hmm. yeah, he was he was a very good employee. and That's good. That's that's a wild uh, mm-hmm. miss work. Yeah, and just from the sounds of it, Robert was just a really all-around good guy and was really responsible and would show up to work. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Sounds very unlike him. 
So Karen, the adult daughter, said that the last time she had spoken with her mother was on Friday, August 6th. Edith had called her from a payphone in Clearwater and mentioned that they were looking forward to meeting up with Robert, Jackie, and the two girls. Okay. But everyone Robert's boss had spoken with had echoed what Robert, what Robert's boss also feared. And as they spoke, the first thought in everybody's mind was that maybe the Johnsons and Bentleys had gotten into a car accident or were trapped and lost somewhere in the dense forest. Mm. Like it was a very dense forest. Mm-hmm. And I mean, just stuff can go wrong. And so they're just kind of worried that something had gone wrong. And it had been a long time since I'd heard from them too. Yeah, both of those are probably very real options that, you know, like something could have happened. Yeah, I mean, stuff happens all the time. And so they're just really worried. And so the next day, August 24th, friends and family officially filed a missing persons report with the local branch of the Royal Canadian Mounted Police. Okay, that's good. And then I'll shorten that to RCMP because that is a mouthful. (laughs) But the RCMP officials launched into a massive search in the Wells Creek Provincial Park and investigators spanned out across the nearby town of Clearwater where they knew Edith and George had been and where the Johnsons had told their friends in Alberta where they were headed. Okay. So investigators had to rely on information from eyewitnesses who'd either seen the Johnson's sedan or the Bentley's truck in camper near the weekend of August 7th and 8th or any time between then and August 23rd. So they're just looking out and trying to ask for any information that they could for this family. Yeah, for sure. Trying to get any information they can at all from anyone. Mm-hmm. Who knows who who might have seen anything? Yeah, I mean, you never know. And so the authorities, when they're looking, they found a park register book on August 3rd or from August 3rd that George and Edith had signed. But after that, the government employees in the park had gone on strike and nobody had put out the register in the days following that. Mm -hmm. So they had known that George and Edith had gotten there, but still didn't know if Jackie and Robert and the girls had. Okay. So based on this logbook and the known last phone call placed from Clearwater, RCMP investigators felt sure that George and Edith had come and gone freely from the park between August 3rd and August 6th. But they had no really good way of knowing had Robert and Jackie and the girls showed up. Mm-hmm. And so on September 21st, a gas station clerk near Clearwater told police that they had given the Johnson family directions into the park via an old logging road that weekend of August 7th and 8th. Oh, that sounds sketchy. Use the main roads. <laughs> the clerk was able to positively identify the girls' pictures and told the RCMP detectives that the family had specifically asked where camping areas were in the park that were close to wildberry patches. Because wild fruit is just way better than anything else you can get. Trust me on that. Mm-hmm. And at that time, the girls were very excited to spend time berry picking on the trip after they met up with their grandparents. Mm-hmm. Well, mm-hmm. That's cool. The directions that the clerk gave the Johnsons would have put them in a old rural logging road the same day as a heavy rainfall hit the area. So I'm not sure if the road was paved or not, but most likely it wasn't. And so just the road could have been very dangerous to drive on. Like if it's just dirt or gravel, it could have kind of washed away. Yeah, for sure. Kind of based on these eyewitness reports and just the um, the evidence they had, they're kind of wondering, like, were both the families caught up in like some accident during the bad weather? Was just one of them? Like, mm. I mean, what what were the odds? Yeah. So six days into the search. RCMP detectives brought in airplanes to fly over the Clearwater and most of the Wells Great Provincial Park. The pilots were instructed to look out for any washed-out areas for any signs of the Johnson's 1979 Plymouth Caravel and the Bentley's Ford pickup with the camper on the back. The sedan would be harder to spot, but authorities knew that the truck with the camper would be larger. And so the friends also told investigators that the Bentleys had an aluminum metal boat strapped to the top of the camper, which would have made it stand out even more. Oh, yeah, for sure. Those are super shiny things. Yes, very bright and shiny. <laughs> and then the pilots were also on the lookout for any tents or like remnants of you know, remnants of tent in the remote camping locations of the park. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's smart. Mm-hmm. But unfortunately, two weeks of intense search searches on without any single clue about the family's whereabouts surfacing. No sign of the two cars, no metal boat, no tents, nothing. Wow. Two weeks is a long time just to come up with Mm -hmm. nothing. 
That's crazy. I know. And plus, yeah, they had pilots and they had people on the ground. That was just a lot of manpower that just unfortunately came up with nothing. Mm -hmm. However, the police didn't know that earlier somebody had spotted it and they were actually sitting on the huge clue the entire time. Oh, no. Mm -hmm. 19 days earlier, on August 22nd, a 38-year-old man named Kurt Crack was walking through some old thick woods in the Wells Creek Provincial Park berries when he noticed something strange mm-hmm. a few feet ahead of him stashed behind a bush a bunch of brush and berry bushes was the burned out shell of a sedan oh kurt initially thought that the car was just another case of someone dumping abandoned property in the park yeah i mean with such uninhabited wilderness it was it really wasn't uncommon for people to just like leave their stuff there and let nature take its course but with where the spot the car was located, it was so far off the beaten path that it just seemed really odd to him. Yeah, that does seem quite odd. Especially that it's, like, burnt out and stuff. That doesn't seem normal. Oh, yeah. Especially if you're just, like, dumping it. For sure. And, yeah, it was, like, it wasn't near any close roads. So, like, Kurt thought, like, the person who put it there, like, intended for it to never be found. Because, like, if you're really going to dump your stuff, you're just going to kind of... Mm-hmm throw it out the window or like you're not gonna go through so much trouble as to hide it under a bunch of brush or put it in a spot with a bunch of brush yeah for sure mm-hmm. yeah and as you mentioned that it was so charred that kurt was concerned they couldn't get it out of his head and towards the end of his hike he stopped two people riding on horseback and asked them if they could call the rcmp in office to report it mm-hmm. so a few weeks later on september 9th the horseback riders finally reported what Kurt had told them when he found out in the woods. Oh no, that's a long way. I know, I was so surprised time. that they'd taken so long, but, or that really he hadn't gone to town to do it himself. Right. But I mean, that's weird. No shade to Kurt or the horseback riders. Yep, it was a different mm-hmm. time. Yeah, it was 1982. I mean, that's, I mean, this August will be the 40th year anniversary. So, mm-hmm. which is, yeah, kind of weird to think of. <laughs> <laughs> But three three days later, when investigators finally got a hold of Kurt on September 12th, he took detectives to the spot and sure enough, they found that burned out shell of a 1979 Plymouth Caravelle camouflaged in the wilderness. The sedan was the same year, make and model the police knew that the Johnson family had been driving. And when the detectives checked the license plate number, it came back as belonging to Bob and Jackie Johnson. So it's definitely them. Or like their car. Mm -hmm. Yes, it's their car. And so when police officers peered inside, they realized that whoever burned the car just didn't splash a little bit of accelerant on and light a match. The detectives knew that whoever set the fire had doused it with gasoline because everything inside was melted. Oh, wow. All that remained was the spring for the seats and the metal floorboards. So it was badly burned. So it's like, it's gone, Mm -hmm. gone. Yeah. (laughs) And so piled in the backseat area was a bunch of ashes and what appeared to be an assortment of human bones. Oh, no. Mm -hmm. So the detectives called in a forensic photographer and pathologist to process the car. Yeah. When the forensic pathologist arrived and began examining the pile of ash and bones in the backseat, he recognized several of the bones appeared to be fractured in multiple places. Some of the bones weren't distinguishable at all because the fire had reduced them to ash, but he could tell that at least they belonged to people and not animals. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so next to the bones, he found the metal head of an axe. The wooden handle had been was completely gone, but the iron blade itself was still there. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. So after the pathologist spent a few hours removing all the bones from the back seat, he determined that in total, four sets of adult skeletal remains had been piled in the back of the sedan and then set on fire. Jeez. It's mm-hmm. crazy. So he believes he found Bob and Jackie Johnson and then Edith and George Bradley. So uh-huh. those four have been found, but there are still the two missing little girls. Oh, wow. And so the police, because of these suspicions, the police decided to search the car's trunk for the remains of what they believed could have been the 11-year-old Karen and 13-year-old Janet. Okay. The investigators got a tire iron and pried open the trunk. And as they suspected, they found two more sets of burned bones that both belonged to the children. Oh, no. That's so sad. Mm-hmm. 
And so eventually they were able to use dental records to identify all six of the victims, but the police already knew that the bodies belonged to the Johnsons and the Bentleys. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's too bad. Mm-hmm. It's also really sad that like there's nothing else distinguishable enough, so they have to use dental records. That always makes me sad when when they have to use dental records. That means like it was super bad. Mm-hmm. That's just that's just sad to me. Oh, for sure. Because yeah, when they have to, because your teeth are really or like the DNA inside the tooth. Because there's really nothing else left. I know it makes me so sad. But the pathologist noted that in his report that because of the way the remains are positioned, which was piled on top of one another. It was highly unlikely that they died in the fire itself. Okay. He determined that it was more likely that all six of the victims were killed before being stuffed into the car and setting it ablaze. Mm-hmm. Well, at least they weren't like burned alive. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean that's some slight kind of piece, but mm-hmm. one of the victims' skulls had had a distinct bullet entry pattern that indicate that they had been shot. Oh wow! And so when the pathologist conducted an autopsy on the skull, he was able to retrieve the bullet. Mm-hmm. And ballistics were able to identify that the bullet was fired from a 22 caliber rifle. Jeez. Mm-hmm. But the RCMP did not release this information to the public right away. All they told the media was that they believed that both families had been shot. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. And they, That's crazy. Yeah, And they wanted to keep the, the specific details of the murder weapon a secret from the public because they wanted this detail that only the killer or the killers would know. Yeah, for sure. That's that's smart of them. You don't want to release all the information that you have because then you'll never know like who's telling you the truth and who's just like read stuff online and stuff. Oh, for sure. And yeah, or just the attempts to try and catch the killer in a lie. That's perfect. Oh, yeah. And so news of the group, the six gruesome murders and the arson spread really quickly and widely across Canada. Families in all the provinces, but especially British Columbia, were fearful of a violent murderer who was still on the loose and out there, possibly waiting to strike again. Mm -hmm. People in news outlets also theorized that the perpetrator was possibly not working alone and that there could be a network of killers in and around the Wellgrade Park area. Oh, wow. Mm -hmm. That's intense. It was massive public concern and panic. Mm Mm-hmm. Which is totally fair. This this family of six had just been brutally murdered, and oh, yeah. the bodies burned. So it's totally yeah normal to be scared, and just I could not imagine the public. Man, if I was in that situation, I'd be so scared because I love camping. It's great, but it's scary, I guess. Because I mean, you don't have that that much protecting you really if you think about it for sure and i mean if you're staying at a tent you're sleeping you're just not right aware of your surroundings it's it can be very dangerous Mm -hmm. and so detectives with the rcmp were also equally as disturbed by the crime but the investigator this allowed the investigators to really focus their attention on trying to understand the crime scene in and around the johnson's car which let me remind you was huge i mean the park itself is 1.3 million acres. And so it's just hard to know how big was the crime scene itself. And so we're at least talking of dozens of acres in the Wells Great Park that could possibly be part of the crime scene in one way or another. Did the killer walk through? So they had this really large area to try and search. Yeah, that's huge. And so the investigators started combing through as much of the woods near the burned out car as possible to search for more clues. On one rural dirt road, and a few hundred yards away from the sedan, it caught their attention. On the road, they noticed a freshly chopped tree from the side that appeared to have been cut down, almost as if the path was being cleared to the spot where the Johnson's car ended up. And so, yeah. Okay. Very, very dense woods. And so it seemed that somebody cut down the street to try and get there. Oh, okay. Yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> yeah. And so this chop, it made the investigators realize, like, they get the axe head that they had found with the victim's bodies in the back of the seat of the car. And so the investigators thought that the killer had intended to hide the sedan as far in the woods as possible. And so whoever they were, they had gone as far as bringing an axe with them to clear a path, which the RCMP found both incredibly disturbing and intriguing at the same time. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Despite making good connections like this early on, the big problem facing the investigation from the start was that all the victims weren't found until more than a month after they disappeared. 
So that's a lot of time. Yeah, that's a long time. Yeah, and I mean, they're out in the woods. There is a possibility of just nature taking its course and evidence being washed away in rain or Mm -hmm. the possibility of animals ransacking their camp because bears are a large issue. Yeah. I know camping. So if they had, yeah. So they're very worried about trying to find possible other places the crime scene. Mm. Mm-hmm. And so one thing that the investigators had noted right away was that George and Edith's pickup truck and the camper was missing from the crime scene. Yeah, yeah, that's what I'm thinking. They too. knew that if they could find the vehicle, yeah, if they could find the vehicle, hopefully that would bring them one step closer to identifying the killer. Mm-hmm. And so investigator Michael East Eastham, who was the lead investigator, made finding the truck his top priority. And once again, hundreds of law enforcement officers began searching the Wells Gray Park. They split the vast wilderness into quadrants and began walking the trails and roadways, looking for the vehicle or any possible tire tracks. Wow. That's a big area. But, I mean, I'm glad they're, they're tr- doing stuff and that they're trying. Oh, for sure. Wow. That's, that's a lot, mm-hmm. a lot of work. They also sent out airplanes to try and survey the woods from the sky, but the forest cover was so thick, like, it really wasn't much help that they had these airplanes, but I mean, the efforts were probably appreciated. Yeah, for sure. Anything that mm-hmm. anyone can do to help is probably super appreciated at that point. Yeah, and I mean, you never know if you might see something. So it's always helpful to try and have eyes in the sky. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so at the same time, Investigator Eastham and a squadron of officers all started door knocking at every home in Clearwater, British Columbia. They wanted to speak with every single person who lived and worked in town to try and figure out if anyone could have possibly seen or heard anything that could help the investigation. Within a week. Smart. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Within a week, RCMP got two major breakthroughs. A park employee came forward to report that during the week of August 9th, they had seen Edith and George's Ford pickup truck with a camper fixed at the back, but parked in a remote, remote clearing inside the Wells Gray Park. The specific area was called Bear Creek Campsite. Okay. So there was no water hookups or bathhouse facility near the campsite. It was just a flat piece of land that you could build a fire and set up a tent. Yeah, but at least there was a sighting of them. Mm -hmm. And yeah, the clearing also wasn't really well known for camping. But the friends of Robert Johnson said that he knew where it was located and that he had spoken about it once about taking his family there. So it sounded that it was a really good possible spot where... Um, they might find more information. Yeah, for sure. That might have been like their end destination where they wanted to kind of all meet up and camp there for mm-hmm. their stay. And so they quickly arrived at the campsite and secured it with crime scene tape. And it was obvious that after quick scanning and looking at the matted down grass and the recently used fire pit that someone had been camping at the location within the last month. Oh, wow. Okay. And I was surprised that they could still find matted down grass. Yeah. Yeah, me too. Because usually grass like comes up pretty fast. But I don't know. Maybe maybe it was because like it was being driven on probably. Mm-hmm. So maybe it stays down for longer. Yeah. Or maybe there's just like slight differences that you can tell. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I'm not that smart. But yeah, they were <laughs> able to tell that somebody had been there within the last month. And so they quickly started looking around for other clues and immediately found a cooking pot in the ashes of the fire pit that looked really similar to the one that the Johnson family had owned. And so the police also found an unopened pack of beer bottles lodged in a nearby creek. And so it seemed as if someone had put them there to like stay cold, but never quite returned to drink them. Mm. Uh-huh. And so this was like started to look promising, but after a few hours of, pro- of processing the campsite, that's when the officers knew that they had found their initial crime scene when the when the murders had taken place. Okay. In the grass, officers discovered six 22 caliber spent shell casings from a rifle. Oof. Yeah. So whoever had killed them had struck there, then transported the bodies to where the burned out sedan would eventually be found. Mm-hmm. And according to some reports, the distance between where the car was found and the campsite was only a few miles apart. Oh, wow. So it was very possible that somebody had transferred them. Yeah, so it's pretty close still. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Compared to the size of the entire park, it's pretty close. Oh, for sure. 
So at this time, the RCMP did not release any of the media, anything to the media about the Bear Creek campsite or the shell casings. Again, they're very, they didn't want to tip anybody off who the killer was and just to kind of keeps all of their cart without having to show all their cards. Yeah, for sure. And so right around the time that the, the bullet casings were discovered, investigators got another lucky break. Someone came forward and to report that they had found the Bentley's truck and camp that they had seen the Bentley's truck gang camper driving east from the British Columbia in the weeks that the family was missing. Okay. The tipster said that he had followed the same exact make and model truck into a gas station in the north of in the town of North Battleford, which is in Saskatchewan. So which was more than a thousand miles away from the Wells Gray Park. Oh wow. That's pretty far away. Oh, for sure. The witness said that he had seen two rugged-looking men get out of the truck and went into the restaurant inside the gas station to eat. Okay. When RCMP followed up on this lead, they received several more reports of familiar, of similar sightings. Witnesses who worked at the gas station described the two men as being in their mid-20s, appeared to be scruffy and disheveled, and spoke with thick French-Canadian accents. can never trust the French-Canadians, man. They're always the most <laughs> sketchy ones. <laughs> I'm just kidding. So yeah, you're going to have to be dangerous going to Quebec. They're not going to let you in there. <laughs> you just insulted them. <laughs> yeah. Oh, no. But detectives brought in a sketch artist to create drawings of the men. And soon after, the RCMP flooded the local and national media outlets with these composite sketches. And then the authorities also released pictures of the Bentley's missing camber and the truck. Yeah, because of this, more than 1,200 tips from across Canada began to pour into investigators. Like normal, some of the information was complete bogus, but a lot of the reports were quite similar. Mm-hmm. The pattern the police noticed was that all the tip, in all the tips, the settings indicated that the truck and camper were traveling east across Canada a little further every day after the murders made headlines. For example, tip, tipsters who came forward with this information shortly after the murders were announced in mid-September said that they had seen the truck and camper in eastern British Columbia. Then a few days after that, somebody reported in Alberta that they'd seen it. A week or two after that, it was in Saskatchewan, then Manitoba, and eventually East Ontario. Okay, cool. It seemed like the two men were running away from the crime scene in British Columbia. Through the end of 1982 and into the first few months of 1983, investigators processed and cataloged all of the information and tips in the case. Mm-hmm. By March of 1983, RCMP still had no name suspects, and to everyone's dismay, fresh avenues of investigation began to dry up. They needed to try and find new leads. So the RCMP decided to let a Canadian documentary crew from a program called Citizens Alert put together a segment on the unsolved murders. Okay. RCMP detectives provided interviews and cooperated fully with the film crew. They even allowed them to stage reenactments inside the park with hired actors, replica vehicles, and similar camping gear that the Johnsons and Bentleys would have owned. Oh, wow. That seems extensive. That's cool. Yeah, it sounded really cool. And so the lead RCMP investigator again was Michael Eastham, spearheaded an effort to drive a replica of the 1981 Ford pickup truck and camper along the same route that through Canada that so many tipsters had reported seeing the real vehicle. Mm-hmm. So the lead detective, who was again investigator Michael Eastham, also created an effort to drive a replica of the 1981 Ford pickup truck and the camper along the same route through Canada that so many tipsters had reported seeing the seeing another vehicle or seeing the vehicle drive through. So the officers mounted large signs on the side of the replica asking people to come forward if they'd seen similar looking truck or camper drive through since 19, August of 1982. Yeah, that's kind of smart, but... Mm-hmm. I mean, it's really smart, but yeah, it also has a lot of resources yeah. to drive this across. And so they're taking a real gamble with this. Mm-hmm. They're for sure. And so in May, the two RCMP officers started driving the lookalike truck and camper from the Wells Gray Park and stayed on the road for three weeks. Three weeks. Jeez, that's a long time. Three weeks. At various stops along the way, the officials held press conferences to keep the murders in the public eye. Mm -hmm. And with this effort, although might seem strange for a law enforcement agency, it worked. (laughs) That's good. Yeah, the road trip and media blitz through the summer of 1983 kept people talking about the case and brought it hundreds of more tips then. Wow. So, which 
and most of which reinforced the authorities' belief that whoever had killed the family definitely traveled across east across, traveled east across Canada in the Bentley's truck and camper. Mm-hmm. So by September, the investigators focused a lot of attention on one lead in particular. There was a mechanic from an auto body shop in Windsor, Ontario, who came forward and reported that two men matching the description of the composite sketches that the police had released asked for him to paint the outside of a 1981 Ford truck with a camper on the back. He said that both men spoke with thick French-Canadian accents and were carrying a 22 caliber handgun. Oh, wow. They asked the mechanic where a good place to, to dispose of it was in town. So very... Oh, the gun. Yeah. Trying to dispose the gun. Very suspicious. Yeah. Yeah. That's so weird that they would just like ask someone about that and be like, hey, I'm trying to get rid of my gun. Where's the best place? That's yeah, so weird. For sure. And so he also. So, so direct too. Oh, for sure. And so the mechanic also told the police that after he painted the vehicle for the two men, they told them that they were headed south across the U.S. Canadian border to Detroit, Michigan. Oh, wow. So they're just, like, letting their whole plan spill. hmm So the RCMP officials immediately contacted the U.S. authorities to try and coordinate a search for the men. Yeah, for sure. That's smart. But right as that was happening, forestry workers back in Wellsgrave Provincial Park stumbled upon something disturbing that brought the investigators focused away from the U.S. and straight back to the British Columbia. Oh, wow. On, on October 18th, 1983, Two forestry workers walking through the woods on a remote mount- mountainside in the Wellscrape Provincial Park noticed something eerie in a thick section of evergreens and brush. They peeled away a few more branches and discovered the burned-out shell of a pickup truck with a camper on the back. Okay. So they found the truck. It wasn't driven across Canada like um, the the tips had said, but the truck had never left the ca- had never left the park. Yeah. Huh. That's weird. So with a matter of hours, the RCMP teams went to the location and confirmed that the park's license plate or the truck's license plate that it had belonged to George Bentley. Okay. Well, that's good at least. Yeah. So they found the truck, but the truck was 12 kilometers or about seven and a half miles from where the Johnson's burned out Plymouth was ditched a year earlier with the bodies inside and less than 20 miles away from the campsite the authorities knew was the primary crime scene. Huh. That's so weird. Do you do you think that maybe like they did drive it like east or whatever and then brought it back, maybe? I don't know. You'll find out. Okay, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> so after the truck's discovery, the RCMP investigators had to face and publicly address the reality that for a year they'd been trying to follow leads east across Canada to find the truck and the two unknown men who likely weren't even connected to the murders at all. Well, that's crazy. I take back what I said about the French Canadians. <laughs> I'm sorry. You have to issue an official apology now for you, Andrew. <laughs> and so the authorities, as well as the family members of the Johnson Bentley family, were really heartbroken to realize that they had essentially wasted a year on a wild goose chase. Yeah, for sure. That's a lot of a lot of time and like effort and resources that was spent. Just to find out that it was all for nothing. Mm-hmm. And especially, yeah, and especially for the family because it's just it's too bad. It's too bad. They're so excited and they had yeah. um possibly answers, but now they're right back at square mm-hmm. one. But it did say that the family never blamed the authorities for what had happened. That they said they were just following evidence and just well, that's good at least. And they're mm-hmm. just but they're really heartbroken of this, of this tragic. Yeah. Which is understandable, for sure. Mm-hmm. And as soon as the Bentley's truck and camper were identified, everyone refocused and tried to get back to work to start over the case, because they were practically starting from the beginning again. Mm-hmm. And so the first obvious clue was that the truck was extremely well hidden in a thick grove of evergreen trees in an isolated ravine. So, and police actually even had to chop down tree, all of the trees around the site to even get to the truck and process it for clues. Oh, wow. So really remote, insane, hard to find spot. Oh, wow. That's crazy. Yeah. And so also the likelihood of finding any usable forensic evidence like fingerprints or hair fibers were all out of question because it, it just been too long. Yeah, you're probably not going to find And this a whole truck lot. had also been badly burned that they weren't even able to tell if the aluminum mm-hmm. boat was still attached to the top of it. 
Oh, geez. That's crazy. Mm-hmm. Everything, including the truck body itself, the camper shell, and the interior had melted into one another. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> wow, that's crazy. I've never heard of anything like that before. Oh, me, yeah, me neither. And that had to be a really hot fire to melt aluminum. Oh, yeah. For real. That's what, that's what I was just thinking. That must be super, super, super hot fire. And it's weird because, like, none of the trees around it were burnt. So was it, like, burnt before and then brought there? I, mean, I don't know. Yeah, possibly. But, yeah, it just sounds really weird. And so. Um, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Another thing that the officers had noticed was that there was a 22 caliber bullet hole in the driver's side door panel. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. And we'll talk about this more later. So keep this in mind. Okay. The, lo- the location of the burn truck and the camper was also a really big clue in and of itself uh-huh. that the RCMP that they said they later told news outlets that revealed a lot about the killers Okay. or the killer. Mm-hmm. Um, the RCMP investigator said that the only person who could have known to burn and abandon the truck there, like in this location, was someone who's familiar with the area of the park and knew that the police would never be able to mm-hmm. search thoroughly in this area yeah that makes sense and so they also when detectives went away from the truck they noticed that was just a few meters away from the edge of the side of a cliff oh wow so they believe that the driver had likely intended to launch the vehicle off the side of the cliff but been had been unable to do so as far as they had wanted to because of the dense vegetation yeah and then that makes sense mm -hmm. that's scary yeah and unlike at, I mean, still at the earlier crime scene where they found the car that had the other vehicle, the Johnson's vehicle, they found another chop on tree, which that still aroused suspicion. So cutting down all the trees to get this car off the cliff would have probably aroused even more suspicion. Yeah, for sure. And so at this point, the police officers began to re-canvas and re-interview everyone who lived in Clearwater or nearby homes close to where the burned out truck and camper had been found. They had completely abandoned the idea that the killer had left British Columbia and taken off into another one of, can- of the Canadian provinces. And they felt uncertain after the after murdering the families and settling into the Johnson sedan, setting the Johnson sedan on fire. The killer or killers had drove the Bentley's truck and camper as it was the last vehicle to be torched. The investigators also speculated that the killer would have had all the ne- necessary accelerant that they needed to torch both vehicles, easily accessible. Because the Johnson had earlier stopped at a gas station prior to entering the park, so their, ten- their tank was nearly full around the time that they were killed. And then George and Edith's truck and camper con- contained close to 100 gallons of gasoline. 100 gallons? Wow. That's crazy. That's a really mm-hmm. big tank. That's a lot. Oh, first, I mean, they probably had extra yeah. things of gas in the back, but that's an insane amount of gasoline. Okay. That makes sense. Yeah, for sure. My car's tank is like 12 gallons. I mean, yeah, most cars probably take about that. I think mine's probably in the 20s, but still over 100 is a lot. That's crazy big. And so officials with the RCMP were also certain that the murderer was from the area and likely only had to bring his 22 rifle and an axe to get away with the crime. And so the police officers brought in a dozen of people for further questioning, ran 24-hour surveillance on the men from the area who had criminal backgrounds, and asked all of them to take polygraph tests, which I hate polygraph tests. Yeah, polygraphs kind of (laughs) suck. I mean, everybody calls them like a lie detector test, which in big air quotes for lie detector test, because they don't test you lying, they test your body and what you're saying. Yeah, and your body's reaction to stuff. You can easily fail those while telling the truth and not fail them while lying. Like, it's super easy to get around. Or not necessarily easy, but, like, it's possible. Yeah, it's very possible to to be beaten. So I absolutely hate polygraphs. But I'm always on the thing where it's, like, are kind of on the edge. Or, yeah, whenever people say, like, if Uh you don't, like, to refuse a polygraph, because, like, then you might be assumed to be guilty. But if you do take the polygraph test and fail, like, then they're going to focus the attention on you. So it's just always, I don't know, kind of a difficult situation with that. But yeah, it seems like a lose-lose no matter how you look at it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but to get off my soapbox. According to the news reports, every person that the police had looked into had passed. And so, and they just kind of finished their investigation there but and after two weeks of doing this non-stop the authorities finally caught a break 
when they visited the home of a couple living in Clearwater. Okay. Before leaving the man in the woman's house, the the wife said aloud to her husband, quote, tell the officer something Dave said. Weird. Mm-hmm. So the husband was reluctant. I'm intrigued. Yeah. The husband was reluctant to explain more, but eventually the officers, but eventually told the officers that their friend and man named Dave asked them a few months earlier how to register a vehicle if it had a bullet hole hole in the door. Uh And remember, the authorities had not released to the media the information that the Bentley's truck door had a bullet hole in it. Yeah. They released that the victims had been shot to death, but never mentioned anything about any of the vehicles being shot. So the fact that the couple had said that the friend talked about trying to register a vehicle that had been shot was incredibly interesting and suspicious. Yeah, for sure. Oh, Oh, yeah. And so the couple told the officers that a man that they knew as Dave, who was 24-year-old, David William Shearing, they said that the summer of 1983, he had recently moved to the Clearwater area after living with his parents in a ranch just outside of the Wells Gray Park. Okay. So in the area of the park. And so when RCMP detectives checked their records, they learned that they had already interviewed David once before earlier on the investigation when they're going door to door for any tips and information uh-huh. back in the summer of 82 or back in September of 82. Mm-hmm. At that time, investigators didn't get any like really bad vibes from David. They just, yeah, nothing really indicated that he was related to the murders in any way. And he had completely passed this kind of test, so to say. Okay. Uh-huh. But when police tried to locate him in late October of 83, they discovered that he was no longer living in Clearwater. Ooh, that's not great for him. Doesn't look great. <laughs> not at all. And so when they, if he's going to look worse soon too. Oh no. When they dug into his background further, they found a report connecting him to another crime in, Brit- in British Columbia a few years before the Johnson and Bentley murders. Uh-huh. In that incident, witness came forward and accused David of hitting a person with his car on a, ma- on a main road near Wells Cray Park. David allegedly struck the pedestrian. <laughs> David allegedly struck the pedestrian, ran over their body, and left them for dead. Oh my gosh, that's crazy. Mm-hmm. That's awful. I hate that so oh, much. Very much agreed. And um, records indicated that no one had been arrested for this hit and run and the death that eventually occurred because of this. Oh, that's so sad. And David remained their only suspect. Uh huh. Wow, that's so sad, though, that, like, there was really no justice for that family. Mm -hmm. And it just kind of got swept under the rug, it seems like. Yeah. Yeah, after a few days of searching, officers found out that David was living in Tumblr Ridge, British Columbia, which is about, which is a town about 900 miles north of the Wells Gray Provincial Park. Okay. In November of 83... RCMP homicide detectives working the murder investigation got in touch with the local RCMP chief in the Tumblr Ridge area, whose name was Ron German. Okay. Ron told the homicide detectives that he was well aware of who David Shearing was because Ron had arrested David himself a few times for petty theft and traffic violations. <laughs> Man, he keeps just getting worse and worse. Mm-hmm. Ron said that he really just didn't get a good feeling from David and that David would never look him in the eyes. And he just had a general demeanor that was, he said, unsavory and untrustworthy. Yeah, for sure. According to Ron, a few months after David moved to Tumblr Ridge, he pulled him over during a traffic stop. He noticed that David was hauling a lot of newer looking tools in the back of his pickup truck. When Ron asked David where the tools had come from, he claimed that they were his and he was returning from a work site. The next day, uh-huh. Ron got a call from two missing stores in town that, to report that they had been burglar, burglarized and were missing $40,000 worth of tools. 40000 Jeez, that's a lot. A lot of money. Into- that's so much. Oh, I mean, yeah. Tools are very expensive. That's true. And I- Still, that's, that's a lot. Mm-hmm. Either, either way. So Ron arrested David for the theft, but Canadian laws in the 1980s for pretty crimes were pretty light. Oh, of course. So David was eventually re-released and continued to commit thefts and misdemeanors in town. Jeez. When Ron learned that David was the prime suspect for the the unsolved Bentley and Johnson murders, he was eager to arrest them right away and right there and then and there. But the counterparts, but the Clearwater police told them to hold off. Okay. They wanted to kind of 
survey David and kind of watch him to try and gather more information before moving in for an arrest. Okay. On November 19th, 1983, an RCMP team led by Ron, by Chief Ron German converged and approached David as he was getting off of a bus in Tumblr Ridge and they asked him to come in for questioning. Okay. Ron, Ron asked David if he was under arrest or going to be arrested and Ron told him no. Okay. So Ron and David rode in his in Ron's patrol car for about two hours to get to the RCMP post in Dawson Creek that was equipped with better interrogation rooms. Ron said that the entire time, David was calm. He sat next to him in the passenger seat without handcuffs, smoking a cigarette. Oh, wow. That's like super chill. <laughs> and super eerie, too. Yeah. I don't know if I would want him just sitting next to me like that that's that's super weird mm -hmm. i know yeah it just freaks me out <laughs> it should at least be like in the back yeah and anything could go wrong like at any moment like if it just if he decided to lash out mm -hmm. at all mm -hmm. man that's super super scary oh, for sure and especially since he had like this violent past yeah and so investigator eastham who from earlier started asking david questions about the unsolved hit and run that the witness had that witness had accused them years earlier of committing prior to the family murders. Uh-huh. And so just kind of starting off on like um a different crime, something that was less that was lower stakes to David. Yeah. Uh-huh. And so Eastham said that the first mention of the hit and run, David's expression softened and he appeared to be relieved. Okay. And so within minutes, David confessed to the deadly hit and run. So he confessed about doing the hit and run. Okay. Well, that's that's good at least. That's step in the right direction mm -hmm. and so the authorities use david's sense of ease and relief of confessing to the hit and run as a way to try and confront him about the bentley johnson murders uh-huh for 45 minutes police talked with david about the information in the murder case that was all public knowledge stuff like who the victims were where the burned out cars were found etc uh-huh then investigator Eastham asked david if he remembered hearing about where the victims had been killed and david answered and said Bear Creek Campground. As mentioned earlier, up until that point, the RCMP had never released any information about the campsite to the public. Oh, yeah. Oh, no. That's not good for him. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The location of what the police of what the police believe was the initial murder scene was only something that the killer would have known. Uh-huh. Or someone involved, at least. Yeah. Or someone involved, at the very least. Yeah. The next few moments were critical for investigators to try and get David to confess. They told news reporters that as soon as David realized what he had said, that the family was killed at Bear Creek Campground, he started sweating profusely, chain-smoking cigarettes, and became combative with detectives. <laughs> oh, man. So he knew what he said. He knows. He, he messed up. He mm -hmm. knew he messed up. The RC investigators didn't let, let, didn't let up, though. They got more aggressive with their line of questioning, and after a half hour, David broke down and began to cry. Oh, wow. Only a half an hour. I know. It's kind of surprising. Seems like he's he's the person to, like, give us this big kind of macho personality. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, so I mean, especially me, looking but... at pictures, he seems kind of like a very macho man. Yeah. <laughs> mm -hmm. He confessed that he had committed all six of the killings and disposed of the family's vehicles. After writing a full confession, David agreed to draw a map of Wells Creek Park and, and walk investigators through how he stalked and killed the families in August of 1982. Okay. He told the police that he had seen the group several, several times before at Bear Creek campsite while driving to and from his parents' ranch in the area. Okay. One night, he snuck down to the spot and took the family by surprise while they were around the campfire. Oh, no. Uh-huh. He said Bob Johnson saw him come out of the woods with a gun and David fired at him first. He then shot and killed George, Jackie, and Edith at point blank range. Oh wow. He said that the last two people he shot were young Karen and Janet. Oh no. He swore that his only motive for the killing was to steal their possessions, vehicles, and tools. But investigators suspected David's motive was much more sinister than that. They believe yeah. that the crime was also possibly sexually motivated, specifically toward young Karen and Janet. Oh, no. That's awful. I hate that. I don't like that. Agreed. I hate that too so much. Yeah, and even if he was just doing it to, like, rob them, that's quite, like, an extensive thing. That's, that's quite extreme, just 
to rob them. That's crazy. I mean, later he burned their cars, so that's kind of... Yeah, exactly. After several hours of wearing David down again, investigator Eastham asked him directly if he had sexually assaulted the girls. Uh-huh. David eventually confessed that he had abducted Karen and Janet from the campsite after killing their family members and kept them alive for several days in the woods to continue assaulting them. Several days? Mm-hmm. He took them to his parents' ranch and a remote cabin in the woods. Wow, that's awful. Mm-hmm. At one point, David said that a prison guard sur- supervising inmates working on the Clearwater River near the camp, near the cabin, knocked on the door while Karen and Janet were still alive inside. David said that he was able to get the guard to leave and fearful that he would get caught. He shot the girls in the woods the next day, placed oh. their bodies in the trunk of the Plymouth Caravel, doused it in gasoline, and set it on fire. Oh, wow. So I know, so sad. That's so close. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's really sad. Mm-hmm. Yeah. While walking through the police through his crimes, he also took detectives to his family's farm and showed them several items that he had hid in the in a barn, which had belonged to the Johnsons and the Benleys. So the items were hidden in a barn then with the Johnsons. In the hiding spot, he also showed the police the 22 caliber rifle that he had used to commit the murders. Oh. Mm-hmm. They've got him. When word of David's arrest broke out, most people were glad to see that someone was finally found responsible for these horrible killings. Yeah. But a lot of people in Clearwater who knew David were also totally shocked to learn that he was the killer. Really? Mm-hmm. Some of his former high school high school classmates and longtime friends in town had said that they'd always known David to be a quiet, polite, highly intellectual person who had never gotten into fights growing up or had any problems with anyone. But David's and former employers had said that in March of 1982, David's father had died of a heart attack and that had really upset and that event really upset him. And so on, yes, on April 16th, 1984, David went to trial for six counts of murder due to the overwhelming evidence against him. David decided to plead guilty to to all of the charges and a judge sentenced him to life in prison without the possibility of parole for 25 years. Good. And this is the maximum sentence under Canadian laws. Woohoo. That's good. Good, good. Glad that like the family and stuff could get justice and that he admitted that he did it because in a lot of these cases, like they don't. And it's just, that's just awful. Agreed. Yeah, but many people from British Columbia were outraged by this sentence. A lot of the residents wanted David to be put to death for his crimes. Yeah. And so currently, David is still serving his life sentence at a medium security prison in Canada. He married a woman in 1995, and through some visits, he had fathered two children. Oh, wow. Today, he claims that he has renewed his faith in God and is reformed. Despite these claims, David, who, who has changed his last name to Enos... I'm probably butchering. I feel so bad. I'm so sorry. He's been denied parole in 2008, 2012, 2014, and most recently in 2021. Good. He doesn't deserve to be out, and his past definitely shows that. For sure. And so in their summary, the board members wrote, regardless of the gains that you have made since your incarceration, you are not a low risk for for public safety. Although he has spent over 30 years behind bars and participated in several programs, his sexual deviance and fantasy remains. He does not fully understand the risk uh-huh. factors for his behavior or how to manage them. Mm, yeah. And it's kind of like the dangerous part of that is they don't understand. And so they just do it and they don't, it mm-hmm. hurts people. <laughs> and that is the case of the Wells Gray Provincial Park murders. Woohoo. Nice. That was fun. I enjoyed that. It was completely awful, but that was fun to hear about. I know it was a completely horrible story and like what happened, but I'm just glad that despite mm-hmm. all of the roadblocks, like they had spent over a year following the tips that to go east and it all turned out to be just a misleading. Yeah. Yeah. I wonder if people were lying or if it was just something that looked That's similar. That's my guess is. Because I mean... Or if they were purposely I mean, it's a 1981 truck. I, I doubt that they would purposely I mean, mislead, hundreds but. of tips had poured in, and it's a 1981 truck, and so it's a pretty recent truck. That's and true. so to see two people drive east, I yeah. mean, that's common. You look out the, you just look out on the road, and you just see so many of the people driving very similar-looking cars. 
So it's very possible. That's true. That's true. But it's just kind of suspicious that they also had a 22 caliber gun. Yeah. And I mean, possibly it could have just looked like a 22 or whatever. So. Yeah. Well, yeah. Well, thank you for doing that. Yes. And we'd like to thank you all so much for joining us today. Yeah. Thanks for listening. And like always, you will be able to see pictures from the case that we will upload to our various social medias, such as Facebook. CNH Pod. Twitter. CNH Podcast. Instagram. CNH Pod. And TikTok. CNH Pod. At gmail.com. Oh, no. Shoot. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> two different things sorry i was thinking the email I was... we have a tiktok and we have a gmail yeah sorry and if you have any cases for us that you would like us to cover you can email us at cnhpod at gmail.com minus the woo oh yeah <laughs> forgot about that part yeah don't put the you woo either this. but yes any suggestions of cases or just comments or anything we'd love to read them yeah for sure mm-hmm. feel free to reach out and just let us know anything you anything you want. We're we're here to listen. We're happy to read it. Yeah. Well, thank you for sticking with us. Uh, we we're sorry again about the the kind of sporadic episodes, but hopefully soon we'll get back to at least a semi regular mm-hmm. schedule. So yeah. But until then, uh, we hope you guys enjoyed, and we hope you guys listen to the next one. Bye. Bye.